Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Giles Parkinson is founder and editor of Renew Economies, joining us quite a bit more this year with so many big renewables projects getting underway. And Giles, it's great to have you back on Triple R. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, so Victoria was the first state in Australia to privatise its power network, and now the state government has made an election promise to bring back the SEC headquartered in the Latrobe Valley. Thoughts on that? Yeah, look, really interesting move. Um, I guess the headline um, announcement from this all is um, it's 95% renewable target by 2035, which is just yet more confirmation that Australia is transitioning, you know, at a speed which we probably couldn't contemplate five years ago from coal to renewables. And it's just basically the admission that brown coal generators will and really have to go um, in a little more than a decade. So it was pretty gratifying for, I think, most people to sort of see this sort of target put into place, the confirmation that the brown coal generators will be exiting. Um, I mean, some of the brown coal generators are pretty shitty about it, excuse my language, but um, but basically they kind of know where we're heading. They just want to get more clarity. Um, I guess the most controversial thing about that, that announcement was, as you mentioned, the, the, this rebirth of the State Electricity Commission. Um, it's probably too hard to make a real judgment on it now um, because we just don't actually have many details of how it's going to operate and how it's going to work. In some ways, um, look, a lot of people in the industry are very concerned about it because when you get a mix of you know government um, intervention in the markets and you're trying to get private investment, um, unless the rules are really, really clear, and that can have adverse outcomes, it can dissuade other people. But the reality is, is that in just about every state in the country, um, we have this sort of mixture. Um, Queensland is almost entirely state-owned, but not entirely. In New South Wales, it's partially state-owned. In Victoria, it hasn't been state-owned, but now looks like being sort of re-partially state-owned. Uh, Western Australia is um, mostly state-owned, and Tasmania is mostly state-owned. So it's not as though sort of Victoria is sort of sticking its um, head above the parapet here and um, looking for it to be cut off. Um, hope, the way I see it, in, in the most hopeful um um, outlook is that because they're not going to be building the projects themselves and they just want to be part investors in these new wind and solar projects, it could turn out to be, it could, it could turn out to be a really smart way of actually ensuring some of that private investment actually comes to the party. In other words, by standing in the market, taking a stake, it's almost acting like as a state version of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, putting in government money. Um, making sure these projects get built when they're needed to build, that they're needed to build to be built, and then also ensuring that some, at least, of the profits and the benefits are returned to Victorian taxpayers and, and, and Victorian customers. And one of the big things, the big risks about this transition and these new targets and setting dates for coal-fired generators to close down is that we must, we absolutely must, get all this new wind, solar, and storage capacity built. Now, relying on the market is tricky because basically these are private investors that you do not control. So I understand the motivation of the states to actually come in and intervene and help that along. Yeah, and I mean, in your podcast uh, on Renewal Economy, Lily D'Ambrosio said that the government in Victoria isn't going to sit around and wait for 
them as in the coal-fired power stations to announce their decision when the loss is at the government or the, you know, the community end. But with regards to the CEFC, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, they have a particular mandate, Giles. Do you think then the SEC is going to need to be given such a mandate in order to act a little bit like that Green Bank? Yeah, quite possibly. Look, at the Clean Energy Finance um, Corporation mandate is pretty broad. It's just basically just, you know, um, have a look and market up there and help any projects that you think need a bit of a, um, a, a leg up. So they've done, a, you know, they, they've done a lot of different things. You know, they've actually um, either just made a minor intervention um, in a major project just to get it over the line, or sometimes they've taken a small equity stake or even a significant equity stake in a project just to get it over the line. And in other times they've actually paid the entire or looked after the whole debt. Of, of, of a project. So they've done different things. So it's going to be interesting to see the way that the State Energy Commission um, actually sets up and does that. Um, it's been given like a budget, a billion dollars. It's been given a target, four and a half gigawatts of new capacity that it will be at least partially responsible for. So that billion dollars would probably account for, say, maybe 20% of those construction costs. And just pluck that figure out of the air, but just to give you an example. Um, so it's kind of thinking along the same sort of lines. I guess the, the confusion for the market comes in this idea that the um, State Energy Commission may one, once again be a retailer, and then that starts being a real heavy intervention in the markets, but one that's sort of not unsurprising, because I think most people are pretty pissed off with their bills at the moment, and I think having a state-owned retailer in there and trying to keep a cap on that um, is possibly a good thing. How that affects competition in the market, though, yet once again remains to be seen. And really, if you talk to the market, they're expressing a lot of concern. What they really want to see is the details. And you've got some people sort of saying, look, this could work. Or they are saying that if we get the details wrong and the implementation is bad, then it could be really, you know, it could be a bit of a stuff up. And how do you see this decision, I suppose, in the context of a relatively new Labor federal government, Giles? Because we've also seen the, the federal um, ALP, uh, uh, you know, roll out the, um, the Rewiring the Nation program with, with some billions of dollars. And, and uh, you know, a significant portion of that is to support offshore wind in Victoria as well. Do you see, um, I suppose, an alignment between, you know, the ALP and, and in the state and federal level as fast-tracking some of these projects and allowing them to come to fruition perhaps, you know, more easily than they could have otherwise? Oh, look, absolutely. The whole market has just changed in the last six months since the federal, the result of the federal election and the coalition got sort of swept from power. I mean, they were just this massive bollard on new investment. They didn't care about anything. They just, um, you know, they just refused to participate. So if you see what's happening now, basically, the inter, you know, AEMA, the Australian Energy Market Operator, prepared their integrated system plan. They could see what was happening, new technologies, coal fires getting, coal fire power stations getting really old, really unreliable. Something has to happen. You need a plan. So they can up with this 30-year blueprint, and they just said, look, really, with all the rooftop solar that we've got coming into the market, you know, good all, on all the households and the businesses putting that up, we need to sort of, you know, cater for this because it's going to change the whole dynamics of the market. So they put this 30-year blueprint in. The big headline number from that is that within 10 years, by 2030, we'll have 82% renewables. Labor comes in, it's got that as its major assumption for its emissions reduction target, but it's not really a set target for them, and they're not really able to actually do much apart from what they've actually done, which is the clean energy finance, um, sorry, no, the um, rewiring the nation. They're kind of reliant on the states to kind of take these initiatives, and look, we're basically seeing that now. I mean, Tasmania is 100% renewables already wants to sort of double it to 200. South Australia's going to be at 100% renewables in five years. New South Wales Liberal government's already got its own plan to sort of basically allow for or cater for the 
um, retirement of all its own coal generators by 2032. Queensland's got an 80% target. Now Victoria's come in with a 95% target. So it's all happening at state level. It's all being kind of facilitated by what the federal government is doing, which is this rewiring the nation program, making sure they've got sort of concessional finance to ensure that the transmission grid is built in time. And that's a really important thing, because if you don't do that, then you can't install more wind so it's all kind of sort of symbiotic. Um, there's big questions. I think one of the big debates now is that, well, do we really have a national electricity market anymore because all the states are kind of going it alone with their own programs, they're managing their own transitions. Um, and that's a valid question. I'm not really too sure what the answer to that is, apart from the fact that grids and state grids have kind of always been state responsibilities, so it probably is up to them. They're the ones that have to answer to the, um, the electric come election time of there's been blackouts or sort of, you know, huge rises in electricity bills and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think in general what we're seeing is a really long-winded answer, and I apologise for that, but what we're <laughs> seeing is... Um, <laughs> what we're seeing is, um, yeah, we're seeing a, a, an unprecedented level of, com, com, um, of cooperation between the states and the federal government, be they Labour states or Liberal states or, or, or whatever, or Green or partially Green, at least in the ACT, and that's remarkable, and that's a really good thing. Now, the purists will say, this is not a pure market, this is heavy on government intervention, but it's probably what is actually needed um, now. Uh, Giles, I'm glad that you asked a question then said you didn't have the answer because I didn't have the answer <laughs> either because it's you, we go to Renew Economy for some of the answers and Giles Parkinson is the editor over there and I think we've got an audience question, Dylan. We do, yeah. I've got a, actually a, a point or, or question that's just come to on the text line and I'm going to throw to you because I think it's a, it's a good one. Um, the listener's wondering how we can balance the short to medium term issues around reliability of supply and storage capacity and costs. So I guess, you know, some of these projects are going to take quite a while to build and, and while this transition is happening, how do we make sure that, um, that some of the teething issues aren't just too much while we manage that transition? Yeah, look, that's a really good question um, and it's an important question and one that the grid operator and all these people are actually grappling, grappling with all the time. So it's kind of like a chicken and egg situation. You need new capacity to be built before something re retires, but if something has retired, then there's space in the market for this new capacity. Um, and that's something, that's a riddle that people are trying to um, solve as they sort of, you know, trying to sort of manage the timing of the, you know, of the build, construction of new projects and the retirement of others. On the storage capacity and the sort of dispatchable generation, it's important to remember that um, people sort of think, oh, well, it's only wind and solar that needs backup or storage or anything like that. Well, that's actually not true. The, the coal grid that we've had in Australia for the last 30, 40 years has re required a whole heap of backup because basically coal generators were never very flexible. There was time when you didn't want to have too many coal generators because there wasn't enough demand, but times when you needed more things because there was a lot of demand, like peak time. So an awful lot of supporting capacity in the form of gas-fired generators and hydro and stuff like that has already been built and exists. And really, as we make that transition to renewables, and all the studies confirm this from the CSIRO, from the um, Ascola um, College of, oh, I can't remember, the um, of, of Engineering, sort of um, chaired by Alan Finkel and also the market operator, come to the same conclusion. To get to, say, 50 or 60% renewables, you really actually need very little new storage to manage the grid at that stage because there's so much redundant capacity already in the grid. It's only when you start getting above that that you need more storage, and it's only really once you get to about levels of about 80 to 90% that you need a bucket load more. And at the moment, we're a long way away from those things. So... 
you know, people should probably be rest assured that there are a lot, of, there is a lot of capacity in the in the market to be able to provide that dispatchable generation when it's needed. The trick is there to actually sort of manage this transition between, you know, like a fossil fuel based synchronous machines, spinning machines, grid, to this new grid, wind and solar and battery storage, all based around inverters, almost like this switch from, say, analogue to digital. How do you actually do that in a grid where you must, you absolutely must keep the lights on and try it as much as you can to keep the prices down? Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, just before around transmission infrastructure and how important that's going to be. You know, you know, last decade, there was a lot of reporting in Victoria and maybe other states as well around opposition to wind energy when that was being rolled out. Should we be concerned about fast-tracking transmission and consultation with the community, Giles? I mean, is there a way of of bringing in that level of transmission into through communities and things like that that's going to be absolutely needed and making sure that those sort of communities are on, on board with, with regards to the energy transition? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, social licence is going to be absolutely key here. Um, transmission towers um, uh, uh, and transmission lines are big things. They require a really big easement. Um, you notice them when they come across your property. Um, so I think that the transmission companies and the market operators and the governments need to take a lot of care in their communications and their consultations and all the different options that they've got. And we actually mentioned this in our podcast last week, and David Leach, um, my co-host, was just was saying that you know some some um, companies haven't been helping themselves because they come up with this idea we're going to build this really big line, it's about a thousand kilometres long, and we've got all these different routes, and so everyone's kind of looks at the planned routes, and there's multiples of them, and everyone gets offside because no one's really been closely consulted about what the compensation might be, what the other impacts might be, so. Um, so, yes, I think everyone's very aware that they need to have that close consultation. At the same time, we've got this level of urgency. So that's going to be a really important balancing act. And, and to be frank, there's also concern about the economics of some of these transmission projects. I mean, are they the smartest things to build at that right place at that right time? And there's other people sort of thinking, well, questioning it and going, well, you know, really? Um, a bit like Snowy 2.0, you know, this massive project put forward by the coalition. I mean, it's going to be built by lots of things, and it will be useful, but there's not very many people who actually think it'd be good value for money. They probably think there are smarter things to do than that, but um, look, it's kind of committed now, and and um, and we will be using it, but probably not the best value for money. So federal budget tomorrow, Giles, is there anything else significant that, that you expect to be announced when the Treasurer gives his speech in Parliament? Yeah, look, I'm going to be really interested in what they do with things like the Climate Change Authority. Um, this is one of the key acts that was, um, and also sort of funding for the for the Green Bank and Arena. Um, and we should hear this rewiring the nation um, thing that we've been talking about, this transmission lines that should be managed by the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, so they might get some sort of confirmation about what sort of budget they're dealing with and and the pace of that. But the Climate Change Authority is really kind of like the Reserve Bank. Um, or should be like the Reserve Bank, but on climate policy, independent, strong, scientific-based assessment about what we need to do to mitigate to um, you know the worst impacts of climate change. Over the last five or six years under the coalition, they tried to kill it, they couldn't kill it, but they bastardised it. They basically defenestrated it, um, reduced its staff from about well several dozen to just eight. Um, put the head of a fossil fuel lobby in charge of it. Um, the head of another. 
another head of another part of the fossil fuel lobby as the chief executive, um, really just quite appalling, and then said, well, you know, even if they come up with any reports, we're going to ignore them. So Labor has made it clear that the Climate Change Authority will play an important role in both in helping to set targets. Uh, it needs to be properly manned. It needs to have a proper budget again. And um, I think a lot of people also think it probably needs new leadership, but that probably won't be a budget matter. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Earlier this month, the federal government announced it would repatriate around 16 women and 42 children who have been detained in a Syrian refugee camp for years. It comes after similar moves by a number of other countries to bring back those caught up in the long-running conflict. This Thursday, the Melbourne Free University is running a session focusing on the situation in Syria. The speaker is Dr Marika Sosnowski, who's a research fellow with the German Institute for Global Area Studies, and she joins us now on the line. Marika, it's been a little while... Since we've had you on Triple R, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, good morning. It's always lovely to be on Triple R. Thank you. And um, I want to get to the repatriation of these women and children in just a moment, but it might be best to begin with the current situation in Syria. What's the, the state of play? Sure. So, yeah, that's a little bit what I'm going to be talking about for Melbourne Free Uni on Thursday night. Um, So I prevaricated the talk on Thursday night. Actually, I prevaricated a little bit because there's obviously many different ways you could take this topic in terms of, you know, who controls what territory, what um, groups are active, what kind of different um, political wings they have and who's active there. So what I've decided to do for the talk on Thursday is actually kind of take it from the perspective of two um, kind of different uh, Syrians, one that uh, was unable to reconcile with the regime, which was a reconciliation as the type of process that the regime imposed on different communities, rebel-held communities, um, at the end of kind of large-scale conflict. Um, So one Syrian who could not reconcile with the regime and another Syrian who could, and through their kind of uh, trajectories sort of post-2018, I hope to kind of give um, people that come on Thursday a little bit of an idea of the kind of texture of both life in Syria and then for a Syrian that um, had to, was displaced because of these reconciliation agreements. And so, I mean, for those that really, there's a, there's a, other conflicts in, in the world now too, but we know that in, in Syria, um, you know, life is still very difficult for, for many people. Is there an act, is it an active war zone still? Um, Bashar al-Assad's regime is still there. Is Russia still involved, for instance? I mean, what what does that look like at the moment? Yeah, so there's still multiple actors uh, controlling different uh, territory in Syria. There's in Idlib governorate in the north of the country. We have um, sort of a vague, loose al-Qaeda affiliate still, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, and their political wing, the Salvation Government. It controls that territory um, in the northwest, in Idlib. In the north, we have um, Turkish-occupied area, what's known as kind of the Euphrates Shield operation area um, in the northeast, which we'll talk about uh, shortly, where um, the Australian uh, citizens and women and children are. It's um, under the control, sort of notionally, of the Kurdish Autonomous Administration, um, the U.S. still has involvement there. Um, Russia is still a strong supporter of the Syrian regime. Iran is involved. Um, Hezbollah is still involved uh, from Lebanon. So, yeah, lots of uh, complicating factors still in the war in terms of um, 
just actors involved. Um, but then also, of course, we have, you know, a devastating economic situation brought about largely because of the armed conflict, um, even though in large parts of the, of the country the armed conflict um, is kind of not ongoing anymore. Um, and then we also have major health crisis, uh, major cholera outbreak, particularly in the north of the country at the moment. Um, yeah, so pretty dire circumstances in Syria at the moment, um, you know, largely related to the conflict, but also, um, you know, factors that uh, were in play before the conflict as well. Yeah, and, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting approach to, um, I suppose, base your presentation on the different experiences of of, of two Syrians in the post-2018 uh, landscape. Can you talk to us a bit more about those reconciliation agreements? I mean, what, what generally speaking, do they entail? Sure, I can talk to you about that with pleasure because I've done quite a lot of work on that. So reconciliation agreements are a type of kind of like a bit of a ceasefire agreement. So what usually happens, um, and I take it from sort of mid-2018, that's when the last... Um, de-escalation area was called came back under regime control in the or the, the third actually of four the Idlib zone still remains um, came back under regime control and what often happened with these reconciliation agreements is that prior to them um, being signed by different rebel held communities the regime would sort of besiege the community um, and it would bombard the community so basically they were kind of uh, a strong arm um, agreement the communities had very little choice other than to sign them and they felt uh, very pressured into signing them because they were literally being starved and bombarded by the regime and essentially they were very formulaic uh, like a written most of them were a written sort of quasi legal kind of document um, that community leaders signed with regime representatives and part of really um, a strong part of those agreements was that uh, Syrian uh, citizens in those uh, communities had to what was called settle their status. And that effectively meant um, I, if you could settle your status, uh, you could um, stay within regime-controlled areas, but potentially in your community. But for a lot of Syrians, that wasn't possible, and particularly uh, Syrians that had been involved with um, political organisation during uh, the years of the revolution. So they might have been involved in local governance efforts. They might have been involved in civil society efforts. Uh, they might have been rebel group members. Um, and basically, they were... It, they notionally had the choice uh, to reconcile with the regime, but it was known that um, that reconciliation process involved you kind of um, uh, coming into uh, office of the security, the Syrian regime security services, and if you were involved in one of those uh, rebel rebel organisations, you would probably be arrested um, and kind of disappear into the Syrian regime jail. So really, it wasn't really much choice at all for a lot of people. Um, so that was a really big um, aspect of these reconciliation agreements. And the other really big aspect was that it allowed the regime basically to retake territorial control of all these areas, um, even though uh, I sort of problematised that a little bit in the talk on Thursday, because um, that control and that security control is not um, as 
sort of all-encompassing as it was prior to uh, the revolution in 2011. There's a lot of different um, um, groups still operating in Syria. There's a lot of different militia groups, um, even pro-regime militia groups that the regime doesn't uh, completely control anymore are operating. So I would say the regime's kind of security control over the country is um, kind of not uh, as all-encompassing as it used to be as well. I mean, it, it, could you then take us to the area of of Syria that the the area that you, you said is nominally in, in Kurdish um, control? What what is that like? The the situation where those women and children are currently in in camps. Sure. So um, the Kurdish Autonomous uh, Administration uh, sort of it largely controls the northeast of the country of Syria. It has a sort of tacit agreement with the Syrian regime um, at the moment. So um, it's, a, it's a sort of um, unique area in terms of control there. Um, the, the armed... Um, group of the Autonomous Administration, the Syrian uh, Democratic Forces, um, controls uh, the camps where the Australian citizens are located. Um, two main camps there that where they where um, citizens or people, Syrians and others, fleeing the violence um, that happened when the Islamic State was territorially defeated. Um, they're mainly Al-Hol camp, which is a sort of larger camp. Um, it's about 2.9 square kilometres. Uh, it was set up sort of decades ago to house a lot of Iraqi refugees that were fleeing um, the US invasion in 2003. Um, so, But in 2018, 2019, when... Um, that violence against ISIS was happening, um, it swelled from about 10,000 in number to about 60,000. So that's obviously a massive leap in what is a very small area. Um, So my understanding is that there was... uh, Some Australian citizens were located there and they've now been moved to the smaller Roj camp, which is about... um, 0.2 0.2 kilometres square, so quite tiny, um, and has about two and a half thousand uh, people in it. That was just set up um, in the wake of the violence against ISIS and to house people fleeing that violence. Um, look, camps um, like Rojan Hole, I haven't been to those specific camps, but I've been to other uh, refugee camps in Jordan and Turkey. Um, you, you know, like they're not great places. <laughs> to be at the best of times. I mean, people who are living there try to live with as much dignity as they can, but, um, you know, the, the dwellings are not permanent. People are living in tents. They're subject to the elements, obviously, whether in that part of the world it gets very cold in winter, it gets very hot in summer. Um, health and sanitation is, is, is a major issue, as you can imagine, um, especially, uh, obviously, over the last two years with something like COVID-19, and then we've got, a, as I mentioned, that massive cholera outbreak in the north of the country at the moment. So um, the situation, you know, the living conditions are not great um, in those camps. So it's really um, imperative that those Australian citizens be brought um, home, um, you know, that were that were linked uh, even marginally to ISIS uh, fighters. 
Dr. Marika Sosnowski is our guest. She's a research fellow with the German Institute for Global Area Studies and we're speaking to her ahead of a free lecture um, she's presenting as part of Melbourne Free University called What's Going On in Syria. And, I mean, in terms of the government's efforts this month to repatriate those uh, women and children, is it the case that it's kind of more, uh, it's sort of easier to do so now? Conditions are such that, that makes those, um, you know, repatriation efforts more doable or is it sort of more of a, a focus for a relatively new federal government in Australia to bring those people back um, to the country? I think, Dylan, look, this is, in my opinion, this is something really that should have happened, you know, in 2018, 2019 already. Mm. The conditions were probably suitable then to do it. Actually, the Morrison government brought home eight children already in 2018 um, from the camps there. Um, in June of this year, um, you might know already that Matt Kinkler, who's the CEO of Save the Children, travelled to the camps himself. Um, that wasn't, you know, to prove that exactly that, that it wasn't an issue actually to go to these camps. Um, already, you know, the Kurdish Autonomous Administration and the US, who was involved in that area as well for many months and years already, has been requesting governments, including Australia, to repatriate their citizens um, from these camps. And uh, over 20 countries have already done that, including many European countries. Um, so Australia has really lagged uh, behind in this regard. And I mean, is there a sense now that it really will happen, Marika? I think so. <laughs> as far as I understand, um, you know, the Albanese government has made... Um you know, the commitment to bring back these Australian citizens. Um, uh, my understanding is, yeah, the citizens that were in Al Hol, um, which, you know, had much more of an ISIS uh, element uh, there and um, have been moved to Roj in preparation for uh, repatriation back to Australia. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I think it's going to happen. They've said they're, they're going to bring them back in stages. Um, I think the point for me, Kalia, is that, um, you know, the media attention on this issue is really a bit like uh, boat arrivals to this country. It's completely disproportionate to the size of the problem. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 16 or 18 women and we're talking about 40 children, most of who are under six. Um, so it's really not a lot of people. Um, and so I think the kind of political attention being paid to this issue is kind of disproportionate really to the size of the of the problem. Um, and I think also we shouldn't forget these are Australian citizens. You know, the government has a has both an ethical and moral uh, responsibility to, to help them as Australian citizens. I mean, that's something we think about a lot as academics that work on authoritarian context and travel to, you know, different countries. Obviously, um, you know, you know about our our dear colleague Kylie Moore Gilbert already, um, but then also not only that we have a we have a obligation under international law, um, especially the conventions on the rights of the child, to um, help repatriate these these Australian children. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.